Our Father, we're thankful that once again you have been faithful. Your mercy are renewed every morning. That you have given um, an adequate track of your footprints down through history in the pages of Scripture. And we ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text would illuminate it to our hearts tonight through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last time we started in our review from last year, and uh, I think we got up to uh, talking about the fall, uh, uh, what was involved in the fall, because one of the things I hope you catch on to in Thursday night class is that the Bible is a package deal. You can't take pieces of it, and you can't split it up. If you allow the doctrines and truths of Scripture to lie on the table unconnected. The non-Christian and the carnal mind can always swallow the Bible up piece by piece. But if you lay all the doctrines out on the table connected, it can't. It jams the system. And we're going to see a little bit of that and how that works out practically tonight. But the big idea is to, in the framework series on Thursday nights, is to think um, in terms of the large worldview. We're not talking about a truth here and a truth there. We're talking about an overall system of truth that the scriptures present. And we are not embarrassed to use the, uh, the word system. That kind of offends people sometimes because they think of system as somehow uh, uh, artificial, it's academic, but if that's because they start with a non-biblical idea of, of the word system. If you think in place of uh, system, the idea that God thinks orderly, and if he reveals himself here and there and does this work and he does that work, then the work must be done in an orderly fashion. God thinks rationally. So, looking at the create-a-creature distinction, we, the last time we reviewed this chart that we've gone over and over again, that there aren't 18 answers. Basically, in the world, there are only two systems. There's the system of the carnal mind, whose author is Satan, and there's the system of God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. There aren't any other systems. All non-Christian religion are part and parcel of the, uh, of the fleshly mind that's working. And we want to, over and over again, go back to this, this uh, idea, this difference. Last time we concluded the class imagining ourselves in the Garden of Eden at the moment of the fall. And we reminded ourselves that Eve is sitting there, or standing, contemplating something. And we want to get inside her mind because if we can get inside of her mind as it is presented in Scripture, we have the essence of sin. And it's not quite what we tend to think of when we think of the word sin. Inevitably, we think of sin, we think of some moral issue. That's, that's involved, but that's not the issue. That's not the root of it. And you remember, one of the things we concluded with last week was that as Eve um, positioned herself with, on the one hand, Satan's statement that the day that you eat of the fruit, 
you will not die. And over here, she had God's proposition, exactly opposite. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. So here she is, faced with mutually opposite positions. There's no middle ground. Either she dies or she doesn't die when she eats the fruit. So there's no more, no more answers to the question. Those are the only two positions. So here she stands... And she walks into the situation thinking of those two propositions as of equal merit and that she has to, as the independent human judge, exercising her independent human mind, make an independent human judgment between these two propositions. Now that is exactly, that is exactly the way the world views the Christian faith, the Bible, or anything else. Over here we have non-biblical alternatives. Here we have the Bible. They're both opposite. Everybody knows there's a, there's a collision here between biblical and non-biblical religion, between the claims of Jesus Christ and the claims of all other religious leaders. Everybody knows that. We know there's a contradiction and a conflict. That's not news. The question is, how do we view that conflict? And so here Eve is in the garden... And by viewing those two propositions, and this is, uh, we, we want to be clear about this. This is the heart of the, of the spiritual conflict that's going on. It cuts across our lives every day that we breathe. Every time we make decisions, every time we have a struggle in faith, every time we, we just look and analyze at our own lives, we're going through this mental process. And it's always a temptation because it's imbued in us because we're depraved, fallen beings. When Eve looks at those two propositions, one from Satan and one from God, as equal and opposite propositions in conflict, she's already misanalyzed the problem. It's already, she basically has already fallen. She has already placed herself as the ultimate judge, the umpire that decides between one or the other. It is she who makes the ultimate choice. She is the final arbiter. After God has spoken, God's word must receive her personal approval. So therefore, what has happened? And I hold my hands out like this to show you it's equal plane because I want to relate it to a, uh, something on this chart. When we say that between these two views, over here we have the creator-creature distinction. We've said that thousands of times in the last few years on Thursday nights. Create a creature distinction. Create a creature distinction. Create a creature distinction. Repeat, 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 repeat. Why? Because the creator is qualitatively different from the creature. The creator is the final authority, not the creature. That is the essence of the biblical position. Eve has already departed from that when she stands between God's Word and the Word of Satan. Now she, to her own mind, views herself as uncertain of one as she is of the other, denying the fact that God's Word is self-authenticating and implicitly carries its own authority. She has bought into the position that the God's Word isn't clearly authoritative. To it must be added man's approval in order that man walk by faith. 
But the Word of God doesn't come with authority. It's rather given authority by our testing. After we tested it, then it has authority. But it doesn't implicitly carry its own authority from the very start. Now, when she's in here, this is the favorite idea that there's two views of reality here, Christianity, non-Christianity, and so on, but there's a neutral in-between zone, a sort of demilitarized zone that stands between the two. And if you're going to be neutral and objective and honest and have intellectual integrity, you must occupy this demilitarized zone between the two competing positions, and then, by the result of your own study, you decide which one is true. What I'm trying to get you to see is that that itself is not a neutral position. Let's think why. Let's go through this very carefully and very slowly because we have to go through this again and again so we see what is sinful and deceptive about this kind of thinking. What we're trying to do is master a pattern of biblical thinking. Eve has already bought into this, the continuity of being. How has she done that? because she's basically said that God and Satan are sort of on the same scale. If God speaks a word, it's, it's maybe a little more authoritative than if Satan speaks the word. But after all, we can't really be sure that God speaks the word in truth because it might be possible. It might just be that I could eat of that tree and not die. In other words, Eve posits that in this universe... Certain things are possible and certain things are not possible. She posits that it's possible that God might not be God. That in back of God there's a realm of chance and probability. And possibly I can get away with it. Now if that isn't an analog of what goes on in our hearts every time we sin. Because ultimately when we personally get involved in struggles of the sin nature versus the Holy Spirit and the flesh and the filling of the Spirit, occupation with Christ, when we, when we have these inner battles that go on inside, it's always somewhere connected that the universe is so structured that it might be possible to succeed in a sinful way. That it might be possible to choose our own way without the consequences God says will follow. After all, if we really believe that if we sin and the consequences the Word of God say follow, we wouldn't do it. The very fact that we do sin tells us that implicit in our programming, in the inner maps of our mind, there's a lot of propositions in there of this so-called possibility that God's Word doesn't verify. Well, that's what we mean when we have this continent. It's not just a philosophic concept. What it means is, is that God, man, Satan, and everybody else is sort of on the same platform together. That's one view. And it comes out by the degree of authority that we grant them. On the other hand, over here, the creator creature, that view demands that when the Word of God comes to us, it is clearly and implicitly authoritative without checking. That it is unnecessary to authenticate the Word of God. We don't add to the Word of God something else. This is the position that we've used the illustration um, previously on Thursday nights, the, using the illustration of the interior decorator. Uh, your home, your house is in a big mess, and somehow you've got some money now, and you saved it up, and now you want the whole thing redone. 
so you call the interior decorator and you expect to see him come with wallpaper, paint, and so forth. And instead, the day that he shows up, all of a sudden you hear this loud noise in the front lawn, and it turns out to be a bulldozer headed straight for your front door. And you say this is some sort of disagreement about what I ordered. I wanted the home decorated, not destroyed. And he tells you, well, in order to fix your house, uh, Mrs. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, we're going to have to bulldoze it all over and start from the bottom. Now, that's humbling and humiliating to think that your house is so messy that the only way to fix it is bulldoze the whole thing out of the way and start all over. But that is precisely the gospel. Jesus Christ doesn't want to be added to a pantheon of other gods any more than as he existed in the Old Testament. Remember Dagon, the false gods, and so on. Jehovah would never take a position in a pantheon with the other gods. God always insisted on coming in and destroying the pantheon, removing it. So that's the idea of the authority of Scripture that accompanies this, the create-a-creature distinction. And when we don't have that view of Scripture, then we've already compromised and drifted over here and made God, man, and everybody else that happens to exist in the sort of the same area. Now we want to move on um, to just pick up where we were at the end of last year. And if you have your notes, if you turn to page 55, previous chapter, we want to go back in history to the beginning of the exile. Because having dealt with the creation and the fall and the authority of the Word of God, we come now to this idea, the Scripture gives us, that God has disrupted our sinful history. That the world we live in is not a normal world. The Scriptures don't view this world as normal. That's the non-Christian position. That's the, the unbelief position. I guess we better, before going into these events, we better review this chart again. We must get this firmly in mind, particularly now because we're coming into the book of Revelation, of the revelation of prophecies and that sort of thing, and uh, to prepare for the coming of Christ in the New Testament. We want to see how the Old Testament saints looked at this. And we have to realize that, once again, the biblical position is totally, emphatically, and radically different from the non-Christian position. The non-Christian position has no hope. Without God, without hope in the world, we hear those words, you know, and they become so familiar we really don't, you know, get the meaning. What we're saying is that the world is full of good and evil. It's mixture. And that little thing off the Korean flag is the oriental symbol for the yin and the yang. It means it's a mixture of the bad and the good. And all of history from eternity past to eternity future is bad and good. It's always bad and good. It's always life and death. It's always sorrow, sickness, and happiness. It's always joy and it's always sadness. There's always this equality between the dark side of life and the light side of life. And this is considered to be normal. It always was. After all, if everything evolved through death, sorrow, competition, and suffering, wasn't it true that good and evil always existed even before man supposedly evolved? So the, the unbelieving universe has this hopelessness to it. There's no future here. And just look at that bottom line. There is no future to the non-Christian position. 
is just hopeless, absolutely hopeless because the good and the evil stay there. And this is the reincarnation we said about the Eastern people, New Age people, America, the New Age people, America being the only ones foolish enough to think that reincarnation is, is a hopeful thing. That the Orientals who have thought about this for a thousand more years than New Agers in America have already concluded, no, no, you're wrong. Reincarnation is a horrible thing. It's something to be avoided. Who wants to be reincarnated back into that mess again? Or for a hundred times or a thousand times? So in the Christian position, and only in the Christian position, you have this other view. And here the view is that God is the one who is good from eternity to eternity in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning, who is purely the light, who is always good. And below him on the scale is the creation, perfectly created until it was fall. So in here the creation was good. Now between the fall and the final judgment, is good and evil, mixed together. But notice, this good and evil is a temporary thing. It is bounded on the left and on the right. It's bracketed. So we view the presence of good and evil as an abnormality. The non-Christian has to view it as a normality. Then finally we come to the time of judgment when God will eternally separate the good from the evil. A very sobering thought. Because what this means is that once it is separated, it is forever separated. Some applications to this as we go through Scripture, vocabulary, that sort of thing, ideas, repentance can only occur between there and there. After the separation of good and evil, repentance is impossible. That's what makes hell hell, and that's what makes heaven heaven. There is no more repentance. There is no more grace. The day of grace is gone. There's no offering of salvation for the third and fourth and fifth time. There is once to man appointed a day of judgment, and that's over. So this is the sometimes viewed by the non-Christian when you're discussing the gospel. You've probably had people say, oh, I don't believe in God who does that kind of stuff. And they like to make fun of us, and they like to ridicule the idea of a heaven and a hell. Well, now, looking at that diagram, you should be able to look them right back in the eye graciously and say, well, I'm glad there is a heaven and a hell because that's the only answer to evil. What is your answer? What would you propose as the alternative to heaven and hell? How do you propose to deal with a mixture of death, sorrow, and sin? What is your position? It's not my position. It's the position of Scripture, so I didn't come up with it yesterday. It's been around for a number of centuries. And so... It's th that's the position we have, and we just would like to know what your position is on this issue. Surely you've thought about it. So we come then to the kingdom period, because the Bible is telling us that God is moving from this position to this position. Every event in the Scripture, every moment of history is in advance when Satan will be cast from the field and replaced with Jesus Christ. It is the advance in history. We have an optimism about history. We are going to get to that point, and nothing will stop that progress. The gates of hell shall not prevail. So it's a powerful incentive and motive. So when we come now in the Old Testament, in the end of the Old Testament, we come down to these last events. The last one we're studying, preparatory to the introduction of Jesus Christ in history, is this one, the restoration of Israel. 
So we want to take a look to get into why Israel is being restored to why she went into exile in the first place. Why did she? All right, on page 55... On page 55, we, last time, in chapter 4, we went through the reasoning and what, what was the circumstances of the exile. And you remember that Israel was under a contractual arrangement. Israel had a constitution that was more than something that we have in our country that written up here in Philadelphia. Israel had a constitution given to her by God by direct revelation. There was no constitutional bureaucracy that sat around. There was a lot of men in a conference or a convention for weeks trying to decide and hammer this thing out. It was God said to the nation, you have a destiny and it, you will certainly arrive there. But if you obey me, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you. And remember the tension? We said that that's one of the unresolved tension points in the Old Testament because Israel on one hand is elect to forever exist in the presence of God, but on the other hand, she's also cursed every time she disobeys. So how do you take a disobedient, sinful nation who's going to be cursed every time they disobey and get them over to this point where they're going to be forever safe in the holy presence of Jehovah? And that's the tension that's in the Old Testament. Well, when in 586 God had enough with the disobedience, he, Im he imposed a disciplinary cycle upon the nation. That disciplinary cycle is outlined, if you want to take the references, we, we went over them last year. Two key chapters in the Old Testament outline God's program of history with Israel. One is Deuteronomy 28, and the other one is Leviticus 26. Both those chapters give you the blessings and the cursing in very literal terms, in very historically specific details. So Israel went into exile. But keep in mind, the exile is not the final destruction of the nation. Why can't the exile be the end of the Jew? What do we know about the nation? It's a lack. So it's not going to be ultimately and totally destroyed, but it's going to be disciplined. So the exile is the time of the beginning of discipline in 586. And there are three historic signs of the exile. One in the bottom of page 55, which was the loss of the, the kingdom of God. Well, oh, it's on page 56, rather. The transfer of political supremacy. That's the first characteristic of this exile. Now... The ultimate political power of the land of Palestine fell into Gentile hands. So the powers that be are no longer Israel. Israel does not have say over her own land. And by the way, that extends even today. The nation Israel exists by UN mandate. So the power is shifted now to the Fertile Crescent. That is the center of world power. God has said in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, that wherever you go, O Nebuchadnezzar, the dog, even the animals are subservient to you. So we call that, the, that, that paganism, that total global paganism is imperial. I just use the word imperial paganism. And the first characteristic is you have this, this political supremacy. Then on page 57, we went into the second characteristic of that period, 
was with the demise of Israel, you had the demise of the Solomonic line. That will play a critical role in the genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So while it may not appear right now to you to be important, it is important in the design of history. Solomon's son will not stand on the throne, will not sit on the throne. Why? Because the Solomonic line died with Jaconiah. So however the Messiah comes, it's not going to be through that part of the Davidic line. It's cut off. Then we, um, on page 58, we got into the third thing, a rather dramatic objective historical event that happened, witnessed by Ezekiel the prophet as he watched the Shekinah glory that had occupied the Jewish temple, the sign, physical sign of the presence of God, and it moved first to the temple door, then it moved into the temple courtyard, then it moved east, the temple's facing east here, it moved east across the Kidron Valley to that mountain over there. Now what's so powerful about this pathway of the departure of the Shekinah glory, what else does it four or five hundred years later parallel the Lord Jesus Christ left the temple he was crucified in the Jerusalem side of the Kidron Valley he rose again from the dead and what was his exodus path it was over to the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is, is, a, is, a, is on the side the, the olive grove they call it Mount of Olives is actually an olive grove still there growing on the side of this hill it's not really a mountain from our point of view and on the top of that mountain is where he ascended to heaven. Exactly the geometrical spot where Shekinah glory left in 586, or in 600 there when Ezekiel was tracking it, 5, 591 to be exact. All right, so we have the, these three things, the political supremacy of the pagans, the end of the Solomonic dynasty, the departure of the Shekinah glory, and the Jews now go into um, captivity. It's a horrible time in the nation's uh, life. So now if you'll turn to the notes that we handed out last time, we're ready to talk about the return. Chapter 5, page 77. This event will teach us certain things to add to our doctrinal repertoire of the tools of truth that Scripture gives us. Um, we've all, all these events we've talked about have something to do with our own sanctification and they carry over into the New Testament. But the restoration period, uh, we'll see, moves over and gives us canonicity and it gives us a very good insight into praying. And tonight, in this section of Daniel, we're going to see what most people think of as a passage on prophecy. But I want to approach it just a little differently tonight and approach it as an example of a believer living under an imperial, pagan, governmental regime, surviving and being blessed through prayer. And we'll get to the doctrinal part of prayer later, but right now we want to look at Daniel chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you turn to... Daniel chapter 9, very famous passage in the Old Testament. But for those of you who have, are new to prophecy and that sort of thing, uh, here's where we start to get into what will we'll develop maybe a week or two. We'll give stop one Thursday night 
and give you a, a survey of the millennial views of prophecy, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So you'll be acquainted and aware of those terms and why here at the chapel we are premillennial in our belief. In Daniel chapter 9, we have a situation where Daniel is in the exile in what is now Persia. Today, it's Iran. Daniel was actually, all, you could say, he functioned somewhat like a prime minister of Iraq and Iran. It's ironic, those two, those two countries sit in the geographical areas of Babylon and, and the media of the Persian Empire. Um, and they had profound effects on the history of those two countries. Now, those are two countries, and another example, those are two countries that have heard the gospel. So it's not the case that, oh, what about those who haven't heard? Excuse me. But they had a diaspora Jewish community in those countries for centuries, and they had the scriptures available to them for centuries. They are not people who never heard. They heard again and again and again. And they had the gospel, they had the messianic promises around, and they did what they chose to do with them. But they're not people that are innocently ignorant. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, is the situation. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherah, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. Now, do you notice something immediately about this text? Just observe this text a minute. What do you notice that strikes you as you start reading this? Just observe the words. If you were writing this, why? what is emphasized here? Is it Daniel or is it the historical moment? It's the historical moment, isn't it? Look at how verse 2 starts. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed the books the number of years and so forth. So Daniel is very akin. Remember, he's high up in the government. Daniel's not somebody out in the streets here. This, he is a consultant to the highest levels of a pagan government. And he is a believer in the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So it's an interesting role model here that we have. He is able to function inside a pagan society without compromising his personal beliefs and being respected by the non-Christians who live around him, obviously trusted by them, or they would never have invested him with the authority he was invested with. But I want you to notice what's on his heart. In the first year, I observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Jehovah to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. What is the connection between verse 2, we're reaching verse 1, 2, and 3, do you think? just look at that for a minute. Verse 1, talking about the historical situation. Verse 2, what is Daniel doing? And verse 3, what is he, what's the second action does? Two actions. Verse 2 action, verse 3 action. And which precedes what? You know, in the New Testament and Epistle of Romans, there's a saying, faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. So the launching pad for faith is always God's revelation. It doesn't come by Operation Bootstrap, trying to emote yourself into a mood, and trying to work up 
consecrated feeling. It doesn't come that way. And all of us who have tried it always fail, fall flat on our face. You can't work it up. You've got to receive it. And you receive it by exposing yourself to God. And where is God? Not in His temple, in the old sense of the Old Testament. Where is He? He speaks today through the Scripture. So we confront God through Scripture. That's our medicine. That's what heals the soul. So here Daniel is, and he's not too uppity because he's high up in the government, to come submissively under the authority of Scripture. Obviously, in verse 2, what is he telling us about what, what's on his mind? He's a Jew in a foreign land. And he is studying his Scripture. Why do you suppose he's studying this particular section of the Scriptures? Let's hold the place here, by the way, and turn to this section he's talking about. It's actually repeated several times, but let's turn to uh, Jeremiah 25. Turn backwards uh, four books to Jeremiah 25, and we'll actually have a chance to peek at the text that he was looking at. Now, whenever you get an opportunity to do this in the study of the Word of God, this is one great time to show yourself how to interpret Scripture. And all the arguments that people have about how to interpret Scripture, half of them would just go out the window if we just carefully observe how other authors of Scripture interpreted the previous authors of Scripture. So now we have an author, Daniel, who wrote his book under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, but he's going to tell us that he was studying the book of somebody else whose book was also interpreted by the, given by the Holy Spirit. So in Jeremiah 25, you look back first part of that chapter, verse 8, because you have not obeyed my words, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them. Now, this is Jeremiah. What a, what a great minister he had. I mean, this would be like telling us that I'm going to take the Chinese communists, my servant, and I'm going to invade the United States through Alaska and with ICBM nuke uh, San Francisco with missiles that our Defense Department says they don't have yet. And we're going to take out the United States. And I'm going to call the atheist communists my servants. Now, that strikes you, doesn't it? They're his servants? That's right. That's what he's saying. I'm going to take Nebuchadnezzar and I'm going to come against your land and I'm going to wreck it. Moreover, I will take from them the voice, this is the people, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. Talking about the destruction of the home. I will destroy your family. This is historical judgment that actually happened, people. This is the nature of the biblical God. And this whole land, verse 11, shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's the passage that Daniel has read. Now, Daniel was an acute enough student of the Word of God to understand something. He's a man of history. The reason that God chose him is... God gave this man such great wisdom 
that the non-Christians were so impressed by this guy's grasp of where history was going, they elevated him to basically foreign minister of the nation. This guy was really impressive. He was sort of a biblical view of uh, Henry Kissinger. He had a great grasp of where history was going and what the nation should do. Daniel realized he was here in the exile. So what did he do? Did he moan and groan and fuss? Probably, time. But when he got his head straight, he went back to where he could get a divine viewpoint analysis of his situation in life. So where would he go to understand the mess that he was in? Go back to the Old Testament prophets that told Israel this was going to happen. So he goes back to the Word of God, to precisely the passages that say this is going to happen, to look for tips on what is God doing. I am suffering. My people are suffering. Every day it's a mess out here. How did we get here? What is God doing with us in the middle of all this crud? So it's illuminating that, turning back to Daniel 9, that this is the man who in the highest levels of government is puzzled, he is vexed by what he sees in history, but because he's illuminated under the authority of the word of God, he doesn't go to the Chaldean astrologers, doesn't call a 900 line to get the latest hand-holding witchcraft. He goes back to the scriptures and he, he finds a special verse because at the end of verse 2 he's quoting basically it's an allusion to the passage we just went in. And those of you who have a little text here on the side there with a little context, you'll notice that it has Jeremiah 25, 11, and you'll see it probably has speaks of Jeremiah 29, 10 or something like that. Because those are the specific points in that Jeremiah that he referred to. Now, after, after verse 2, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, what does he do in verse 3? after he's straightened out, after he gets a grasp of what God's doing here, now he goes to prayer. See, he doesn't walk into God's presence and say, God, what are you doing? You can imagine the conversation. God says, well, why don't you go back and read, Daniel, before you come in here? Find out what I'm doing. I told you what I'm doing. Oh, okay. So he goes back and he says, oh, now I know what you're doing, God. Seventy years. And I see, I got a good calendar year. And this is coming up on 516, and so that's not too many years away. And if I subtract the 70 years from the Jeremiah passage, it's 607, and 70 off of 607 comes out to the year right about now, 535 BC. So he's saying, whichever date you take here, we're getting awful close to the end of this exile. So Lord... I want to pray that we deal with this situation. Well, where do you suppose he got the guidance to pray? Let's look at his prayer. Verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed, and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly, we've uh, rebelled, we've turned aside from your commandments, we've not tr tr listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame. 
as it is this day to men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they've committed against thee. And just think of what's going on in verse 6 and 7. That is a way that Daniel managed the problem. And if we want to draw it in a di diagram, what he did is, on his mind, was the suffering of the exilic Jews. These were the Jews who were in, with him in the Gentile lands. He's also thinking in terms of the Palestinian Jews. These are the Jews left back in the land. Also on his mind is probably a lot of the suffering under pagan authorities. Their meanness. Their hatred for the gospel and for all people associated with the gospel. The institutional animosity. It's like young people today. You know, it wasn't about four or five years ago we had an incident over here in Joppa Town High School. It just really made me furious had a young girl in one of the classes in the high school, and uh, they were going to discuss uh, evolution and creation. And uh, I can't imagine that in Joppatown High School, it wasn't a Christian on the faculty, but obviously none of them had the boldness to speak up. So they left it to this sophomore or junior in the high school, and who did she have to go up against? The coach. So here, automatically, we make it look like that nobody but some little obscure sophomore believes in creation, but we on the faculty, of course, we are educated. We have degrees, and we all believe in evolution. So you set the whole debate up so that ridicule the situation. And then when they ha came to the afternoon, they were going to have a discussion. The coach got up and gave his thing, walked right out the door while she was talking. So it's this rudeness. It's crude. And it's bullying that goes on to believers. It goes on all over the place. I see it in the prison up at Mondo. You see it all over the place. And it's just because it's the hatred of the world system for the truth. And it's going to show up in all these old instances. And, and Daniel saw that. Daniel went in that. So he, he's bothered by all this. And here's his problem. But if you'll notice, in verse 4 and 5, he relates that problem and biblically controls it. He comes back to Scripture. And first of all, in verse 4, what does he say about God? After he gets through saying, uh, Oh Lord, God, you're great and awesome. That's his essence. He goes back to the attributes of God. God is great. God is omnipotent. So he understands the attributes of God over against his frailty. So immediately his eyes are fixed on who God is, not who he is. Not the size of his problem, but the size of God. This is how he mentally controls himself. Then he says, he advances one more phrase, and he says, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. Loving kindness is a parallel to keeping the covenant. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that God has a plan. It is God's sovereign plan. God has an omnipotent plan. And God keeps his plan. And I know where history's going. There is a plan in all this. Somebody is in charge. This is not a pile of marbles rolling around. There is in charge here someone, and I'm going to the someone, and I even can go back and read his contract. 
I read the fine print and it's all there in Deuteronomy. It's all there in Leviticus. It's all there in the books of the Kings. Then he goes on in verse 5 and he gets at the anchor problem. And he understands from reading those texts sin. He understands and he accepts personal responsibility. He doesn't take a fatalist attitude, well, whatever God wills. No, no. Something's wrong here and it's got to be due to some cause. And I want to find out what the cause is. So, obviously, reading the scriptures, he came to a conviction of his sin and the nation's sin. And then to make sure that he understands it, he prays out the details that were on his mind. Verse 6. We have not listened to thy servants, the prophets. Now, what is he talking about? We haven't read the Old Testament. We haven't read the scriptures. And when we have, we haven't listened to them in the sense we haven't obeyed them. Then he points out that all our society was saturated at one time with the word of God. The kings heard the word of God. The princes heard the word of God. The fathers or the heads of the families heard the word of God. And all the people of the land heard the word of God. We weren't ignorant bozos. We were people who were carefully schooled in the scriptures and we willfully chose to rebel. You see what this does? By the time the guy gets down to verse 6, he can take these problems that he sees and now there's a purpose in all of it. He's starting to get meaning and purpose. He starts to see and put this whole thing into bigger perspective. What he's doing is he's taking his problem and he's bracketing it with the Word of God. He's enveloping it under the control of Scripture. And that's what we need to do. Because every time we get off in the toolies, it's because we have a problem and we've let it loose like marbles rolling all over the floor and we've lost control of things. It's all over the place. But what he's trying to do is, is get them all under some sort of structure. And the structure isn't him. The structure is God. Create a creature. Distinction. And then he says, he begins to partition. Another example of it. Let's look at the bottom of this slide. You know, we show all the time. You notice on the right-hand side, what's there? You notice on the non-Christian position, when you have this God, man, nature, and the whole universe coexisting, see what you get down the bottom? Everybody's a victim. You know what that means? Nobody's responsible. You see, there's a sinful agenda that creates this. This isn't some little innocent thing. This is a shady deal, a package of deception that yields a very useful end product. It gets me off the hook. I can deny my responsibility and I don't have to be judged. It's an elaborate schema to justify sin. That's the bottom of it. But over here, under the biblical position, ultimately, we have to face Him who is our Creator and our Redeemer and our Judge. Ultimately, it is not a person, it is not circumstances, it's not my hormones, it's not something else. It is He that I have to face. That's the bottom line. And that's what you see in the prayer of all great biblical prayers. So he says that Israel has transgressed, he brackets the problem, he understands the plan, and he begins to realize what they need to do. 
see what's happening here? Illumination's taking over. As he studies Scripture, he brackets the problem, he understands what the problem is, he sees it's a problem of responsibility, and now what does he do? Confess, repent. And he begins the process. So he says, verse 11, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse is poured out upon us. What does he mean in verse 11? The curse is poured. God, we're not blaming you. Before he could have blamed God, but he's getting his heart oriented to God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence, and God's grace. And now, no, it's not God's fault. I'm not coming to you, God, and blame you for this circumstance. This is a circumstance we are personally responsible for. This is our own self-induced misery. And it's because we're so stupid and so rebellious and we confess that. Confession. Now, there's no time here for hitting himself on the back with a whip. No, no self-atonement involved in this prayer. It is a simple, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the world might not like that either. Oh, that's too easy. Oh, really? Whose blood is it that was active that allows this to happen? Or would you rather go to a psychiatrist and pay $60 an hour without Medicare backing you up or something and get some phony plan to mess up your life with when we can come directly to God himself, our creator, our redeemer, and simply acknowledge and confess our sins? And notice the last of verse 11. What does he say? We have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us this great calamity. Remember that passage we just went over in Jeremiah? That's where he's getting all this from. Now verse 13 tells you he did some more Bible study. What do you suppose he did to get to verse 13? What books of the Bible did Daniel study besides Jeremiah? He says it is written in the Law of Moses. First five books of the Bible. So gee, he had five books in the Bible. He had seven books. This guy was a real Bible student here. All this calamity has come upon us, and we've not sought the favor of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store. Now, you see what he's starting to notice. Verse 14 is the progress in his thinking. He's saying, aha, what's happened in these years, the reason why it's 70 isn't because it's some fatalistic computer program that says 7-0 coming up, and bing, that's your number. See, it's not that position. It's rather that he sat here and he said, you know why it's taken 70 years? It's starting to click with me. For 69 years, what haven't we done as Jews? We've sat here and we've fussed and we've cursed God and we've blamed Him and we've felt sorry for ourselves and oh, what a horrible thing we're involved in. And this has gone on for two generations and now he says, wait a minute, I'm going to start, I'm going to be a man of decision here. I'm going to stop this blaming God business and we're going to start confessing our sin business. And so now he says, this calamity, because we haven't sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from iniquity and giving attention to thy truth or to thy word, Scripture. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity and brought it on us. Now, O oh Lord, now you see in verse 15, 16, and 17, he begins to pray. He begins to confess. He begins to ask, Lord, verse 16, in accordance with thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and iniquities of our fathers, thy people become a reproach to those around us. 
So, Lord, listen to the prayer of thy servant to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine in thy desolate sanctuary. And by the way, in verse 17, what goal is he praying for? Look at that one. It's very easy when you're suffering to pray for relief of the suffering. But you notice when he gets down here, it's not quite a prayer for the relief of suffering. If you look carefully, that's not really his heart. His heart is that we've sinned, the people have become a reproach to everybody. What's his concern? The testimony of God's program in history. He says, we're a blot. We are supposed to be God's chosen people. We are supposed to be a witness to you, O Lord. And all we have done is so screw up that the non-Christian pagans think we're weird. I mean, we do stuff that they don't do. So he says, that blots your essence. So he says in verse 17, for thy sake, O Lord, not for our sake, it's not ultimately Israel's sake, it's for thy sake. And boy, when you can get there in prayer and mean it with your heart, I mean, that's hard to get there. And when you're suffering, I know because I've been through this thing many times, and it's very difficult to get to verse 17 type thinking. You've really got to work with it so that you can honestly, before God, pray the situation, see the situation such that it's His glory that is foremost in your mind. So hard to do when you're suffering and hurting. But He got there. And then he said, Oh my God, incline thy ear and heart, open thine eyes, see our desolations in the city which is called by whose name? Daniel's name? Jewish name? Thy name. Whose glory is at stake here? The Jew or the Jewish God? You see? Okay. And notice he says that we present, we're not presenting our supplications before the unaccount of any merits of our own. You talk about Paul being the guy that talked about justification by faith. Oh no. It's all through the scriptures. He's not saying we've got a bunch of brownie points now. We've suffered for 69 years and we get 20 points every year. So we're just about, oh, we're over the thousand mark. So now we've earned enough self-atonement here, poor me's. We've got 800 poor me's and we've got all the goody things we've done. And all this adds up, God. You've got to forgive us now. No. Not pleading works. He says, on account of thy compassion, or we would say, God's grace. Because of your grace. Lord, hear, forgive. Lord, listen and take action. Don't delay. Because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. See how powerful that prayer request is? And baby, did this prayer get answered. Look what happens in the next verse. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I see in the vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening. So he had made it prayed all day long. And he was right still continuing to pray and all of a sudden this guy shows up in his room. And he didn't come through the door. And all of a sudden he faces this Gabriel and he knows who he is fantastic mover of history. I don't know how big these guys are, but these angels are pretty impressive creatures. And all of a sudden, here he is, right from the throne of God. Tom, you talk about FedEx. How about this one? 
So he says, while I was still, this guy shows up. He gave me instruction to talk. And Daniel, I've come forth now to give you insight with understanding. Now, at this point, we want to notice the answer that comes. Because it's this answer that's going to teach us something about interpreting Scripture. Daniel understands this. He understands that from this point through the exile to the point where he lives is going to be 70 years. He, ha- he doesn't see this yet. He doesn't see that Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah promise? Jeremiah promised literally the end of the world. He said, you will be... Let's remember what we read in that Jeremiah passage. At the end of 70 years, you'll serve the king of uh, Chaldea for 70 years, and then what will happen? He says, well, then I will bring you from where? Back to the land, but from all the nations. So you're going to have a 100% Jewish return. And it says in the context of the passage, there's going to be judgments on the earth, you know, all kinds of the second advent type stuff. So Daniel sees this could be the end of history and the beginning of what? The restoration of the kingdom of God. That's his view of history. Now the angel begins to interpret to him. He says, well, um, I've come from God and I want to show you something about his words. There's some things you didn't quite see in Jeremiah. So now I'm going to enlarge your vision. He says, at the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you. Boy, isn't that neat. The Lord knew what, he, what kind of a prayer was coming up. And he said, okay, here he comes. Now, Gabriel, you get down there, and by the time this guy finishes, I want you there. And I want you to tell him something. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued. I've come to tell you, you are highly esteemed. I'll bet. And here you have God on the throne of the universe paying attention to the foreign minister of Iran. So he was highly esteemed. And I give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy-sevens, literally, seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish or complete the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be built again with a plaza and a moat even in times of distress. Then after 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war and desolations determined. He will make a firm contract with many for one seven. But in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain. And on the wing of of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is discreet is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What a weird thing that is, and we're going to have to deal with that next week. But what I want you to notice about this is that we have a principle of how God thinks. And it's, it's a prophecy thing, but it's something that we can apply even without knowing all the prophecy. Daniel sees, we're going to get into a conflict. He sees as a conflict here of sorts. If this 70 years, and here Daniel is making his prayer right here, how can there be only 70 years in history to this climactic event when what was the other prophecy Daniel had already given them in chapter 2? 
Remember? How many kingdoms would have to come and go? Four. He's only in the second. So, there's a problem here and an apparent conflict between Jeremiah 25 and 29, talking about 70, and this long-range four-kingdom vision that is given in Daniel chapter 2. So he could be like a lot of skeptics and say, oh, well, contradiction in the Bible. Throw it out. Doesn't meet our logic criteria. We're so smart. And we're going to apply our own human logic criteria. Well, Gabriel is going to show him the logic criteria. And he's going to enlarge his vision and he's going to say, woven into this thing, to tie this together with this, let me tell you something. Haven't told anybody in the world yet about this, but you, Daniel, we're going to talk. And so we're going to sit down. You've already got a good insight into history. Let me share with you what God's going to do. And that's what the topic of these three verses at the end of Daniel chapter 9. These set up for the coming of Jesus Christ. They describe the gospel situation. They describe the second advent situation. So there's a lot packed in these three verses. And out of that, we're going to learn a little bit more about logic and how God thinks over against how men think. And I think it will be an interesting lesson uh, to discipline our minds and control them so that we begin to use biblical logic instead of non-biblical logic. Two plus two is, is four, but it means two different things to the flesh and to the spirit. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you are a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God. And we're overawed as we think of this event that we just witnessed tonight of this lone Jewish man in his room praying after receiving insight, being taught by your Spirit out of the same Bible we hold in our hands today, talking to you, the God of the universe, and receiving such a miraculous and majestic answer, a clear-cut revelation of your sovereign control and march through history, that history and all of its details including all the details of each of our individual lives, are under your plan. Father, help us to keep you in mind amidst all the conflicting details, the urgencies of the moment, the demands on our daily lives, that we can look above all of that at you and learn how to control those problems, how to bracket them, how to see you working through and in them, by going to the text that you've given us, that you've preserved for us, that men have gone through fire and smoke and death to put into our hands. May we treasure this gift as we treasure you. In Christ's name, amen. As always, we'll have a break here and I'll be around for 15, 20 minutes at the front here if you have any questions or answers that you'd like to discuss. You cover clearly, you have questions, uh, your time to, to raise them. We, uh, we're going to try to uh, touch on some of the prophetic implications here in a week or two, um, cover this, the promise of the kingdom and what that's all about and what premillennialism, postmillennialism. You should know those terms if you don't already, just so you when you fellowship with other Christians and they say they, you know, they believe this or they believe that, at least you know what they're talking about. So, uh, if there are any questions, uh, go ahead and do
Debbie, you don't have a question. You're always a good one for a question to start with. <laughs> one of the one of the things that you want to notice um, in that passage tonight, uh, I didn't mention it, but one of the things that is an example of good biblical thinking is how Daniel. Uh, analyze history. Now, he's very acutely aware of history. You notice that little notice he puts in the date, place where he went. Uh, he's, he's, he's not some guy, as much as I stress, that his, he was getting his attention on the Lord over history. That didn't mean that he didn't pay attention to history. He knew very well what was going on. And he probably, being in the high office he was in, in that culture, he knew, he got reports, he saw what the king uh, messengers were bringing from all the parts of the Persian Median Empire. He knew of Jerusalem. He probably knew of what was going on in India. Remember that border, that country borders on India to the east. Uh, very well aware of what was going on in the world. So he's not some, he's not like he's some guy that's off in a, in a ivory tower somewhere. Don't get that idea of Daniel. Um, that's why the book of Daniel is not considered uh, in the Hebrew canon as, as a prophet. As a, it's, remember, it's not listed in the Hebrew Bible as, a, as, as part of the prophetic collection. It's listed as a wisdom book. You know, what the heck? Why is the book of Daniel, with all the prophecies in it, um, collected along with a wisdom book? And if you go to university campus or something, you'll have some PhD get up and say, well, that's because it was written late. No, it wasn't because it was written late. It was because Daniel fits into the category of how to live. All the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, those books are all there to instruct us on how to live. So even though Daniel has these flamboyant prophecies in it, apparently the Holy Spirit, when he classified and set up the canon, thought more of the fact that this is how to live in history. It's kind of amazing that um, prophetic details are very important but in the final analysis it's not a case of sitting there and going oh gee um, isn't this neat prophecy it's rather doesn't this prophecy show me God's footprints through history and that he is in control and that history has meaning because he has meaning yes please. Well, some of the, I, maybe some of the Jewish, some segments in the Jewish community haven't been allowed to read it. It's not in the Torah, in, by, if by Torah you mean the first five books of the Bible. The Torah itself, the law, the law of the prophets and the writing, the, the Torah um, is separate, and then come the prophets, and then come the writings, and it is in the writings. Now, I'm, I'm not aware of Jews not being allowed to read it. I'm aware of the fact that very few of them read it, but very few of them read the whole Old Testament anyway. I mean, I'm amazed all the time when I listen to Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's a Hebrew Christian friend of mine, and he just tells me that the average Jew knows less about the Bible than we do. Um, I always think of them, I guess, knowing more than I do about the Old Testament for some reason. And he said no. And I think Gil Singer, when he came here, he said the same thing, that I guess we think of them that they somehow should know that. And they should, but they don't. 
anybody have any other areas that you'd like to bring up? Just a question. Yes. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, one of the problems with the Sea People Israel connection, identification, identity, is that they came very, very late in Egyptian history. And what, um, and, it, and who they are gets back to which chronology you follow. Because it, when you get into these things, you just slip and slide around, and I, I just don't feel comfortable that these chronologies are tight enough to reason with because there's been so much reconstruction. There's a new book out that I mentioned last year. Um, had it sitting on my desk all summer and I still haven't gotten to it. Um, an English fellow has come out uh, dealing with the very thing you're talking about. And he's, he's been an Egyptologist. And um, I'm interested to see how he handles it because Velikovsky, of course, is the guy that made the big breakthrough back in the 50s. And uh, he was a Jewish atheist. But interestingly, his Jewishness sort of overcame his atheistic beliefs in that he, while disbelieving in God, believed in historicity of the Old Testament, and therefore made the identification that the Exodus happened at the end of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. But one of the things that reminds me, that question reminds me to point out, on the notes that I passed out last week that we were looking at today, if you notice on page one, I have a quote there from John Bright, who for many years taught at the uh, Presbyterian Seminary in, in Richmond, Virginia. Not, not a conservative by any means, but you'll notice on that passage, he, he makes a big deal out of the fact that Israel was restored. Um, here's just a little historical note that I think applies to us in our Christian life. The testimony of the restoration is a rather stunning example of God's ability to preserve his people in adversity. Because if you think of it, can you think personally of a culture or nation that you know of that literally was taken off the map, physically moved hundreds if not thousands of miles, the people, 
driven out. The land repopulated deliberately with non-Jews. And to have that, uh, whatever corresponding country it would be, and have that country coming back into existence in a hundred years, come back into that land. And then, on top of that, to have the same thing happen again, 70 AD, 135 AD, and all that period of history. Have them kicked out of the land for 1,900 years and have them come back into the same land, to the same city, to the same tribes. Name one other nation in history that does that. Maybe there is out there, I don't know. But I'm not aware of any other nation in history that has ever come back after being destroyed. Now let's think about that. That's a fact. Let's treat that as a fact of history. Now let's think about what that fact means. If we're Christian people and we're thinking biblically, how do we handle that? Do we throw it out as just a random fact of history and say, oh, gee, that's interesting? Or do we start seek an explanation of how could it be that a nation like the Israel would be destroyed, wiped off the map twice, and be, be dispersed through the whole world and be able to come back. What is the nature of their role in history that does that? Well, it gets back to what? God's plan for that nation. They will not be destroyed. Arafat can go ahead and declare his Palestinian state in May if he wants to. No problem. God's decrees still stand and Israel will still exist. Israel cannot be erased. Now they've come awful close to it. They've come awful close to it. When you think of the total Jewish population in the world for six million of them to be killed in say a 15-20 year period that's a pretty high casualty rate. And yet they came back. And there we know they have to be in the land because this passage we read tonight, Messiah has to come back. And he has to come back to a temple. And the temple he's coming back to is a city that Daniel prayed about. And what was the city of Daniel prayed about? It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Washington, D.C. It was historic city of Jerusalem. So start noticing that history has anchor points. And I think it will make history much more interesting for you. I never was interested in history until after I became a Christian. Before, it was just kind of a meaningless sequence of events. But once I became interested in the Word of God, I began to realize, wait a minute, something's missing here. My education was sadly and woefully deficient. Nobody ever taught me that history has a purpose. Nobody ever sat me down and said, Charles, have you seen how these facts fit together? Nobody did that until after I became a Christian I started studying the Bible and realized there's a God of history who has a plan for history. So we want to surely convey that to our kids that history has a purpose. Because if history doesn't have a purpose, what application does that immediately result in us, our personal lives? If history doesn't have a purpose, what else doesn't have a purpose? Our lives don't have a purpose. Okay? These are not optional curriculum questions. This is not the case where, well, we don't want to discuss that. Well, if we don't discuss it, folks, we're trying to tell kids and ourselves that our lives are important and they're just bubbles floating on an ocean. What's important about a bubble? 
if the sea itself doesn't have a purpose. So, um, when you see these details in Daniel, and we're going to get intricate to involved in some of the details of the prophecies, that's why they're there. And the fact that Israel survived its history is a testimony that God can preserve. And the application to me, personal life, is that that means God can preserve me. God can preserve you. You can go through death, through anything else. And God, the Lord Jesus said, I prepared a place for you. It's not a, some sort of a, a Buddhist nirvana state. This is some, if you take it in, in context, he's talking about a physical place. A physical place where we will be located. One of the things that we want to look at this year is the implications of the human body of the Lord Jesus. Now let's consider this. If, if just the concept of God becomes abstract, let's consider that at this moment, close to nine o'clock, our time, there exists somewhere in the universe Jesus in his human body, located at a point on a throne such that under certain conditions he can be seen. His image can be projected as it was to Stephen. When Stephen was about to die, Jesus wasn't sitting on the throne. Jesus stood up to receive Stephen. What a vision. How is this, wherever this location of the throne of the Lamb is, uh, it's a place and there sits on it a man who has fingernails. And he runs history. And that's pretty stunning to be able to sit down and say that it's not the force, it's not some nuclear gas that's in control, but there's a human being from planet Earth who has on his own body the scars of past history. It's pretty amazing to think about. Now put it in the computer and let it loop a couple of times. Okay, well next week we're going to go on. If you uh, look at the notes we handed out, we're going to go a little slow through the handout that came last week because I do want to finish up that Daniel 9 decree and then we'll move on to some of the doctrinal consequences of what was going on there. And then I think, we'll go, just before we get into the next section on the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the next large section, the fifth, fifth unit, I want to take a pause for about a week or two and, like I said, go through the different views of the Millennial Kingdom so that we can get that under our belt. Okay.